Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are led by the Holy Spirit through your word to know Jesus evermore. Lift our hearts this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a word called juxtaposition. It means having two things side by side to compare or to contrast. And oftentimes, something that's juxtaposed catches our attention, sometimes in a humorous manner. Right? Sometimes it catches our attention in a little bit more ominous manner. Right? Playing on the beach with all of those dark, stormy clouds coming in. Now, juxtaposition should not be a surprise to us, though, because Scripture is full of it. It makes us focus, it actually grabs our attention and helps us to focus on who we are and who God is. As a matter of fact, if you have been here, we've been, the last two weeks, we did some of the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are truly juxtaposition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for those... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Got a slide here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These things make us stop and think a little bit. Now, we covered those, but there's more that we did not cover, which are even greater in the contrast. And it says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if that doesn't grab your attention, I don't know what will. Because here it speaks of persecution, but being blessed when reviled and rejoicing under such persecution. I mean, these these really make you stop and think. Now, Palm Sunday is no different than that. For most people, though, Palm Sunday is just rejoicing. You know, growing up, that's what I remember. We had the palm branches and and all the kids, we'd wave. You remember that? Waving the palm branches and everybody rejoicing. But actually, when you read the gospel, when you understand more of what's going on, there's not just rejoicing. There's a juxtaposition going on as well. There's rejoicing and weeping at the same time. Again, we shouldn't be surprised if you read Luke. You find that all the way up to his triumphal entry, there have been a lot of things that have been going on. He healed two blind beggars. Remember, one was Bartimaeus. And so there was blindness to sight. He also, he also went to Zacchaeus' house, that wee little man, right? And he was a hated tax collector, but salvation came to Zacchaeus. So it went from sin to salvation. And remember, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So there was death to light, to life. Now, all of these people, these just juxtapositions, really caught their attention. And they were wondering, well, who is this Jesus? Maybe he really is the Messiah. 
maybe he really has come to rescue us from under the oppression of all of these other people, these Romans and so forth. And they, were, they wanted to make him king, like king of the nation. But even then, Jesus had to stop them. Right before his triumphal entry into, into Luke, he says that he told them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he's like, no, you've got the wrong idea. So he tells them a parable about a nobleman who is going to go to a faraway country to inherit his kingdom. And while he is gone, he gives his servants ten minas. A mina was, uh, actually ten minas would have been about 30 years worth of wage. So this was no small sum. It was a huge sum. Now for the servants who actually used what the, the gift that they were given and used it for great good, they were rewarded richly and there was rejoicing. But Jesus ends the parable this way. For those who had squandered the gifts, he says, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. There was weeping. Rejoicing and weeping. And by the way, most people want to skip that. Commentators, Christians, they want to skip that because that's too harsh. Jesus wouldn't actually give a parable like that, would he? It's too great of a juxtaposition. But we can't shy away from it. Jesus certainly didn't. And so when we take a look at Scripture, and when we really study who Jesus is, we get a much richer understanding. And I would put it this way. If you do not understand the weeping, you don't understand the rejoicing. To not weep is to not truly rejoice. So let's start with the rejoicing. This is from Luke chapter 19, starting verse 28. And when he had said these things, the parable about the servants and the minas, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was the city on the hill. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. That's a lot of talk about a colt, isn't it? I mean, why so much about this particular colt? Well, you have to understand that Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy. The prophecy is from Zechariah. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus was specifically fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah. That's why there's so much emphasis about this cult. But is there anything special about the cult? Well, yes, there is. First of all, it had never been ridden. It had never been a beast of burden. You see, animals that had not been a beast of burden, had not been ridden, were set aside for sacred use. As a matter of fact, they were set aside for royalty. Now, you might think that would be really weird to have a donkey, a colt, set aside for royalty. But actually, Solomon rode into Jerusalem for his coronation on a donkey. David, on occasion, also rode a mule. So it's not just the Davidic line, the line of David, that he was riding a colt, a donkey, that had not been ridden before, said that he was a sacred king. This is Jesus, the sacred king, who's coming in to Jerusalem. But you should also know this, that in times of war, the king rode on a stallion. This was to show his strength, where he would ride on a stallion, leading people into battle. But in times of peace, the king could, didn't have to, but could, ride on a donkey. And when he did so, he was declaring that this was a time of peace, not a time of war. You see, the people of Israel, his disciples, wanted him to be the conquering king of this nation of Israel, to come and do battle. But he signified by fulfilling this prophecy that he was one of peace that he would establish peace. Peace between God and man. You know, during Advent, we always quote Isaiah. One of the titles for Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? He is the Prince of Peace. And that's also what's declared in the Gospel of Luke, that there would be peace The angels declared this glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the prince of peace who is coming. Not in a time of war at that moment, but a time to bring peace. And he is one who brings righteousness. Righteousness and salvation. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. What is actual righteousness? Righteousness is what is good and proper and morally right. And there is only one from whom comes true righteousness. And that's Jesus. He is perfectly righteous. And the peace he brings is salvation. He brings a salvation unto you. I mean, this is the king that can bring peace like no other king. Look, so many people want peace in the world, right? We prayed for peace this morning. 
Social justice warriors think that if we will just have enough justice, we will have peace on this earth. Other people say, well, Jesus was a pacifist, so we must just lay down all arms. Other people use Jesus as philosophies in so many different ways, but they will not have the peace that Jesus brings. The peace that Jesus brings is between God and man. This is a peace greater than ever before, than ever will be peace. And I know many of you are seeking that. And many of you have friends and family members who seek peace. And they try to fulfill their lives in all sorts of different ways, but it really doesn't bring them peace, does it? Listen to what it says in Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So, making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And then our reading from Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we won in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Listen, if I, I, I practically want to yell here. That right there is the foundation of our rejoicing. It is the peace that we have with God. It is firm. It is unchanging. It is eternal. We have peace, and in that we rejoice. That's the joy, that's the firmness that we stand on, the peace that we have with God, and that peace can never, ever be moved, and thus we have a life of rejoicing, of rejoicing in Christ Jesus. Now, did the crowd understand this? Probably not. And quite frankly, today, throughout the world, And in many churches, people still don't understand that. So let's go on with our text here. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, while... Luke doesn't record it here in Matthew. talks about laying down palms, right? We have Palm Sunday. This was a special thing for the nation of Israel. They were the emblem of Judea. Palms appeared on coins of the land. It symbolized the riches of the country. So when they put palms down before him, he was richer than the richest richness of the country. 
That's the significance of the palm. So it was something special for them. Now, they praised him in a loud voice, didn't they? They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, to come in the name of the Lord or to come in the name of anybody, I mean, have any of you ever been announced? And here is, and here is Bill. Sorry, Bill, I'm just, that's the first name that came out. And here is Bill. He comes in the name of, I mean, you like, you don't do that anymore, right? I guess the only place we do that is with ambassadors, right? An ambassador comes in the name of the country or in the name of the ruler of that country. Jesus came in the name of the Lord. And there's no other name that he really could come by. And so they recognize him as this king. And again, notice what they said. What's that word? Peace, right? It says peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, that echoes scripture throughout. Again, did they really understand what they were saying? Maybe a little? Probably not. And so Jesus rather than just accepting all the praise all the way through, he does something that no other king has done. He weeps. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, the Pharisees, they weren't impressed. They thought that Jesus was just kind of grandstanding, making a theatrical entrance, which would have been blasphemous in their eyes. And so they tell the disciples, make sure Jesus shuts his yap. This is blasphemy. But Jesus knew that even, even if his disciples were silent, the stones would cry out because he is the Lord of all creation. And all creation shouts his praise. But then he weeps, right? There's only two places where it's recorded that Jesus weeps. One is at the death of Lazarus, and the other is here. Now, with the death of Lazarus, you really sense that it's a personal grief, a sorrow over his friend. But when he cries for Jerusalem, it's different. It's much more like a lamentation. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. This is a deep, deep grief. It is like the prophets of old who are crying out to the nation. His lamentation speaks of his mercy, his love, his compassion for the people. He desires 
everyone to be saved. And that's what you have to know about God. God is not indifferent about unbelief. He sent a son because of love. He sent a son because of mercy. He sent a son because of grace. God pours all of that out. Jesus pours all of that. And he, he's crying, he's lamenting, basically saying, don't you know what's going to happen? Listen to me now. This is your day of visitation. But they didn't. And so he grieved. Now I bet a lot of you, especially if you're a parent, you know this type of lamentation. You grieve over a child who is rebellious. I mean, it could start off really simple, right? Just not doing the homework, but it it piles up after that. And then you start to see them do life choices that are destructive to them. And I bet you even know family or friends who are making choices in their life, even though they have been warned, even though they have been told that this path leads to destruction. Doesn't your heart ache for them? Don't you grieve and weep? This is what Jesus did. He grieved over them. And he said this, he gave them a prophecy. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So the Lord was giving a prophecy about the holy city, Jerusalem. And in 70 A.D., the Romans would come. They would lay siege for 143 days. 600,000 Jews were killed during that time. And thousands more taken captive. And the temple was destroyed. The historian Josephus tells us this. He says, Caesar had already commanded the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground leaving only the towers which projected higher than the others to stand. So everything was wiped out except the towers. And the part of the wall which enclosed the city on the west. This was to be an encampment for the troops which would be left behind, and the towers were to reveal to posterity how great a city Jerusalem had been and what sort of fortification Roman prowess had dominated. All the rest of the wall which encompassed the city, the the demolition teams leveled so that no one would come there in the future and ever believe that the spot had been inhabited. Then he says this, While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for the age nor respect for the rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laid and priests alike, were massacred. That's what happened to Jerusalem. It was so awful that Josephus records the great 
Roman general, uh, the great Roman general Titus. Titus, it was so awful even for Titus, he threw up his arms and said, and called God to witness that this thing was not his doing. So why did all of this happen? Why did all of this happen? Because they rejected Jesus. Because they did not listen to his word. Because they had not believed. And they rejected him as king. They did not know the day of their visitation. Now the day of visitation means when the Lord draws near to his people. It speaks, going back to Isaiah and Jeremiah, but it speaks of salvation for some. And there's rejoicing. The day of visitation is your salvation, and the Lord is drawn near, and you rejoice. But for others who reject Jesus, who reject him as king, the day of visitation is a time of weeping and a time of judgment. Now I know, I know like, well that wasn't a Palm Sunday sermon, right? You're thinking, I had different expectations about that. I know that. But that's what's recorded for us. And so you have to take a look at it in the entity. Because as a Christian, if there is no weeping over sin, if there is no remorse, repentance over sin. There's really no true rejoicing. Now, we don't keep lamenting again and again and again. We just don't, we don't wallow in that weeping. Actually, for those who are in Christ, we know that there is forgiveness when we sin. There's forgiveness and we rejoice in that, right? We rejoice. But also for people that we know that do not know Jesus, who are not of faith, we do lament. And it should spur us to bring the good news to them. Look, if you want to share the good news, this is the week to do it. We share the good news that Christ not only died for our sins, He rose again. And because He rose again, we rejoice. And in that rejoicing, we stand firm, right? We stand firm on that. Because that is eternal. And so everyone says, Amen. Amen, amen.